Praise God. Amen. It is good to be here this morning. Uh, let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 to verse 4. Amen. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 to verse 4. You know what? While we're just still uh, waiting here this morning, why don't we just, what a powerful, powerful morning this morning. What a wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, preaching. Pastor Cluck challenging us as watchmen, uh, Pastor Foley about pioneering. Why don't we just lift our hands and just begin to ask the Holy Ghost, sealing in our hearts what God's doing. Uh, let's begin to praise Him. Let's begin to pray. Uh, let's begin uh, to ask God's blessing. Uh, God, we love and worship God and adore your name, God. God, we love and worship God. Oh, God, bless us, Lord. Thank you. Praise God. Let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 to verse 4. You may have heard uh, uh, recently in Australia, there was a youth pastor, very famous, well-known uh, pastor, up and coming, shining lights, uh, pastor called Michael Guglielmucci. Now, Michael uh, Guglielmucci was one of the up and coming uh, musicians, songwriters, uh, sang at Hillsong and various... Uh, uh, other places, very famous, very well known, but made the announcement that he had contracted or had terminal cancer and was there at Hillsong and declared and wrote a, uh, that God had given him a song as he is wrestling with this terminal disease God spoke to him and challenged his faith that God's a healer. He wrote this song. He sang before a huge crowd of people, thousands, and if not thousands more, watched that clip, watched that video, bought that CD from Hillsong. He sang it with an oxygen uh, tube in his nose, sang this song, tears in his eyes. You, the, the camera pans the crowd and, and it's a moving song. You're looking at this man as he's struggling with cancer, struggling with the emotion, saying, oh God, you're my healer. People's hands are lifted. People are worshiping God, you're my healer. This song uh, 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 went top of the charts, a tremendous uh, 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 song. There's only one problem. Michael Guglielmucci didn't have cancer. It was a total fake. He had made up the story. It was a complete fallacy. He's now uh, interviewed saying, I did not have cancer. And uh, he sang this song. And I wonder... How many people have been influenced by someone, enamored with someone, yet you have no idea who they are or how they live? All of us 
have seen the tragedies of people, new converts, family members, reading things on the internet, reading those words, reading those comments about our fellowship, our pastor, reading those things, and they, re- and they said, this is outrageous, uh, and new converts are ripped off. Family members uh, call into the church saying, you need to come out of that. But the truth is, they have no idea who wrote those words. If they met that person in reality, they would very quickly go, you are a muppet, and, uh, 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 and dismiss completely all that they would say. A little while ago in London, I came to church on a Sunday morning, happily minding my own business, to be confronted with uh, posters of myself along the roadside. Picture of my face with a big dollar sign uh, over it, uh, Dollar Brown, they called me. That's because the dollar's doing better than the pound. Dollar Brown and, and uh, 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 you know, this was uh, uh, not, and so, you know, we had to take them all down. People are coming into church. My face is on the every, you know, uh, telephone, but Dollar Brown, you know, kind of, here's a website, go and have a look at all his antics, etc. cetera. Uh, and uh, in fact, that day, all over our pioneer churches in London, this group of men had gone around putting this up around every church in London. And, uh, but what was funny was we caught them. We actually caught them physically. And uh, (laughs) But what is interesting, when we found out, I mean, here it is, people are going onto the website, checking out all this stuff, what's been written, this is this and that. Very, you know, I mean, mean, the, the guy can't spell, but apart from that, you know, written all there, the twistings and the turnings, but the guy we could, that, that was behind it all was a, uh, a, a guy that uh, had been disciplined, thrown out of one of our churches for pornography addiction. So if you met this, you know, you know the, if you met him in person, you would dismiss his words in a second. You see, there is an intimacy. See, people are influenced by people, they have no idea, but there is an intimacy. There is a security. There is a dependency in the relationship between the pastor and his church that God has ordained. All over our fellowship, there is a security. There is a, uh, uh, an intimacy that God has ordained. Now, The truth is, that is such a great blessing and such a privilege to have a pastor, and that is not always understood by all. And I want to preach a message, I've got a pastor, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 to verse 4. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside 
to fables. Now, I want to look with you first of all this morning as, uh, at our pastors as ordinary men. In our text, the Bible says that in the last days, they will heap up for themselves teachers. Barclays, uh, in his commentary, said these words, in Timothy's day, it was tragically easy to find such teachers. They were called sophists and wandered from city to city, offering to teach anything for pay. Isocrates said they had tried to attract pupils by low fees and big promises. They were prepared to teach the whole of virtue for a sum. Plato, in his writing, savages these men. Barclays sums them up as these teachers competing for customers. And I wonder this morning how many pioneer pastors often feel as they're sitting in their storefront building, as they're preaching to their people, whether large or small, as they're preaching, they're doing their best to their congregation, they often feel like they're ministering to people who are open to a better offer. That somehow the pioneer or the pastor feels like he is in competition with the God channel. He is in competition with the mega church down the road. The latest evangelist to hit town is seeking to pull his, his, his people and, uh, you know, the truth is, in all of us, we all like the big. There's something in human nature that likes the successful, the bells and the whistles. There's something about that. We heard Pastor Foley, what an awesome message on pioneering. What a, what a, what a wonderful thought and a wonderful message. And here, but, but there's something about all of us that likes the big and the happening and the beautiful. You know, in our, uh, our church in Walthamstow, we have, you know, we have great New Year's Eves. We have a fantastic time together praying in the new year. We do whatever we're going to do. But what was interesting this year was just down the road from us, less than a mile, one of our big mega churches in the area hired out uh, the Walthamstow dog track. Now, this is a major, uh, this is a major, uh, what do you call them, arena. They've hired out this dog track for the end of year celebration. They have uh, flying in, uh, uh, you know, we saw their leaflet, uh, flying in from all over the world, uh, speakers. Uh, you know, w- what we were doing before, and we were trying to work out whether we we're going to serve mince pies or donuts. You get this leaflet. It is filled with the superstars. Israel Houghton was coming in. They had the jugglers. They had the singers and the dancers. I mean, this was a mega production less than a mile down the road from us. Thousands of leaflets, car, I mean, it's everywhere. And you feel like going, uh, anyone, anyone want a donut? The Bible says they heap up teachers. Woost says it means to accumulate in piles, collecting teachers en masse. 
Now, the root word is used to describe a funeral receptacle, a bier or an urn or a coffin, or the frame on which dead bodies are taken to the grave. In other words, something that looks beautiful, the show, the mega, make me laugh, make me cry, but something on the inside that you may not want to embrace. In our text, it talks about enduring sound doctrine. Oh, that hit me the other day, enduring. (laughs) Enduring, enduring sound doctrine. What a great picture here, because that word literally means to bear up with, to suffer, (laughs) to suffer, to put up with. And so here is sound doctrine, that which is healthy, that which is wholesome, that which is life-giving is not always stimulating. It's not always, it's not always. It's the same word that's used to describe in 1 Corinthians 8 to endure persecution. Now that puts a new spin on, I think my pastor's out to get me. Now, to endure sound doctrine, this is not an excuse for boring sermons or boring preaching. But the emphasis here, perhaps, is that of the mundane, of the meat and potatoes preaching, of healthy eating, comes often very ordinarily. Now, that was brought home to me when we went to a recent trip to Israel. Now, that was my first trip. Uh, If your pastor just went to Israel, I have no doubt you are sick and tired of Israel illustrations. My congregation was talking, and then in Israel, pastor, we hear Israel one more time. We're gonna shoot Ben-Gurion. You know what I mean? It's like you just... But it was a powerful trip. One of the things that struck home to me as we're around the Sea of Galilee is you're looking and understanding that these group of disciples had lived around that lake, pretty much all of them, for all of their lives. This was all they knew. This fishing, this life, this village life, this town existence, and yet God takes these very ordinary men and says to them, they've never left this area, I want you to go into all the world and preach the gospel. That is unbelievable. Paul describes ministers, he describes himself and the ministry in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. What a contrast with me between this earthen vessel, this this ordinary vessel that inside has unbelievable hope, power, revelation, glorious gospel, in contrast uh, uh, to those that are heaped up with the beautiful urn with ashes on the inside. Second Corinthians 10.10, for his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak 
and his speech is contemptible. Have you ever been embarrassed by your dad? You know what I mean? Like just, you know, Pastor David Kennedy uh, told me this story. He's one of our uh, uh, pioneers in Bloemfontein, South Africa. And uh, he was born in a Christian family. His parents, uh, his mom and dad were, were great missionaries in India. Now, they ended up coming back to the UK after many years of service. And he said that his mother uh, would still wear the hand-me-downs from the Women's Missionary Society. So in India, they lived off very meager support. She would dress in clothes that were charity clothes. So they've come back to England now, and his mother's still wearing these hand-me-down charity clothes. He used to say to his dad, Dad, please, could you get a pair of jeans? Please. He was the only boy at school that was glad when his parents didn't come to watch him play sport. All, now listen to this, all the way through his schooling, right up to the end, he lied. He said they were millionaires. He told everybody his parents were millionaires. He couldn't have anyone back to his house. He couldn't have his friends over. There was something in him that uh, 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 looked at his parents and said, you know what? And one day, right at the end of the schooling, he had to confess, you know what? My, my parents are just ordinary. You know, I pastor in Walthamstow where, you know, predominantly we have a young, a black church, uh, good-looking people. And I kind of feel sorry for them many times when they have to introduce me to their friends, or you know, these young black, guy, black guys, you know, and they're going to introduce me to their friends. Oh, I want you to meet my pastor. <laughs> uh, we were in one concert one time. You know, it's coming down. People are rapping, singing. I mean, it's a happening scene. And, uh, you know, I'm there, just, I'm there. And uh, uh, this new, new convert uh, uh, turns and says, Pastor, I, uh, I want you to meet my friend. And the friend turns and looks at me and goes, <laughs> Now, the point that I'm trying to make is not that we don't have gifted men as our pastors, but the truth is, in real life, they're very ordinary. And our lives are to be connected closely to these men. And there is, secondly, a purpose of that proximity. Now, it is true this morning that we can, and it is obvious, that we can learn from a distance. Paul wrote letters to churches that, hadn't, uh, uh, that he hadn't even been to. We now cherish them as the Word of God. We read books from generations past. Uh, we view history. We hear the recounted testimony of others, leaders in other ministries or the secular. We can learn from and we do learn from, but there is, listen to me, if you've got the first point, ordinary pastors, there is in the kingdom of God, a relationship that is essential. Acts 14, the Bible says that they appointed elders in every church. It was not enough to say, listen, I'm just gonna keep in touch by letter. 
It's not enough to say, you know what, brothers, whoever comes through, whichever evangelist is passing through, whoever happens to be in town, just check them out, uh, see what they're like, uh, uh, you know, turn on the TV, don't worry about it. The Bible, they understood you need an elder. Jesus said in Mark 4, 3.14, then he appointed 12 that they might be with him. Paul spoke in 1 Corinthians 4, 16 to 17, therefore I urge you, imitate me, Timothy, uh, uh, imitate me. And then he speaks of Timothy sending him to remind you of all my ways in Christ. You see, God has given reason that you would know your pastor's name. Now, let me explain that. We have a football tournament. I've been waiting a long time to say this. We have a football tournament uh, in England. All the churches get together. And obviously, one of the rules is you can't have ring-ins. You can't have, amen, Pat. You can't have people that are not in the church. It's amazing how many people go evangelizing down the local football clubs right before the tournament. Listen, you play, just, just repeat this. Don't worry about it, just repeat after me. Just quickly go, okay, you're safe. Come on, you can play on our team. <laughs> so there's always this, you know, you know what it's like, these competitions, man. I know we're brothers and I know we're Christians, but this is the ultimate test. This is where we test our Bible study leaders. This is the greatest testing ground of all that we do in the year. Can you keep your testimony here on the football pitch? I mean, it's in anyway, so not wanting to name names, but we have a nemesis team. It's on the other side of London, but that's all I'm gonna say. This nemesis team over the years, we're always kind of in clash. And one year, they had a particularly good team and, and we're trying to figure out, man, we don't even know some of these folks. Oh, okay, yeah. And so Pastor Clement, who is not one to just sit back and take anything, went up to a couple of these men as they were resting uh, uh, between games, and he said, hey, guys, what's your pastor's name? <laughs> they're, uh, they're looking at one another, uh, and one says, uh, pastor? <laughs> what time's your services? They didn't have a clue. So you gotta know your pastor's name. We're talking God has given us a reason for the ordinary, our pastors, to watch his life, to see him, and to know him. I know all of that out there, the mega, the show, but there is a relationship that God has intended because first of all, this is how disciples are made. This is the very purpose of the church. The Bible speaks and we understand that this is our calling. I don't care what they're doing out there. We understand our calling that has been emphasized 
even this conference, is to preach the gospel, is to make disciples and to plant churches. This is what we're doing. This is our intent. And so that involves uh, to make a disciple. As you know, it involves involvement, their involvement in ministry, the impartation of spirit and spiritual dynamics. In other words, God has ordained that you get to know or you know your pastor, you know who he is in Christ, what makes him tick, what makes him, uh, uh, what makes him uh, go on for God, and you look at him and you learn and gain his spirit. We look at our pastor, Pastor Mitchell's spirit, as we've heard this conference, and there's a, there's a reason, there's, a, uh, uh, there's a, a calling in all of our churches, ordinary pastors, that have something on the inside that God has intended in that smallness of relationship, in that intimacy. We would know their spirit, their heart, because it is possible to be anointed. Oh, pastor, they're so anointed. Maybe. But not have sons or not have the ability to pass on anything. Like Gideon and Samson and Jephthah. And so, the, uh, and so the understanding of this relationship is intended so that we would watch lifestyle, we would see faith in action, watch me and do, follow me as I follow Christ. That is God's method. Secondly, the reason why God has intended this is that we would overcome, that reference point would help us overcome our humanity. Philippians chapter four, verse nine the things which you have learnt and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. If you'll if you watch me, if you'll watch my spirit, if you'll watch what I do, the things that I have taught you, the things, how I live, this is the pastor's calling, if you will do that, the God of peace will be with you. Now, the God of peace, not the peace of God, the God of peace, the first mention of the God of peace is found all the way uh, uh, with Gideon. The Bible tells us that the children of Israel have rebelled. They're crying out to God uh, uh, because of the consequences of their foolish actions. Gideon is raised up by God and he meets with God and he's expecting to die. But instead of dying, God uh, uh, allows him to live and empowers him to be a deliverer. You know what the truth is? God, even when we make our own errors in life, God wants to deliver us from our enemies. Can you say amen? Amen. God wants to help us. God wants to redeem us. And there are people in our churches that have made horrendous mistakes, their own doing. And they sit in church and they wonder, does God now want to kill me? And the apostle Paul is saying, if you will follow what I do, you're gonna find redemption even in the middle of your own error. In other words, not perfection, but there, there, there is here a dimension of God that can help ordinary men and women as they're trying to walk and live for God. We can watch how our pastor deals with his children. 
how he handles rebellious teenagers. We watch him as he wrestles with uh, uh, stress and pressure and setback. We watch him as he deals with finances and in the real world, and this is not Hollywood, this is not some edited version, some smiling evangelist on a God channel. This is not someone that everything is in order and everything is perfect. This is someone who in real life, wrestling with real life issues like you, follows Christ, does what is right, and there's something in the heart of a congregation that God has intended that says, if you can do it, so can I. If you can get through that rebellious teenager, so can I. If you can make it in the pressures of life, so can I. If you don't quit when the going gets tough, so can I. If, uh, uh, and, they, and that's something that God has intended because that's where we live. The perfect, the show is not where we live. And thirdly, there's a security of a father. Philippians chapter 4, 15 to 16. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. Uh, but even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. And as I'm reading that, you're thinking, what on earth does that have to do with anything? And I agree with you. I don't have a clue why that's in there. It's the wrong scripture. But God says, Paul writes, uh, <laughs> and he says that you have many, many teachers. <laughs> come on, come on. You have many teachers, but you only have one father. And you know what the truth is? We see in our society, <laughs> oh Lord, that's what I'm talking about. You can make it. <laughs> Hallelujah. Our society is being destroyed because of being fatherless. They've lost their bearings. They're insecure. There's a lack of identity. And the truth is that is also in much of the church world. Those who have many teachers, and we see this, those that go from one uh, TV show to another, one event to another, one glorious campaign to another, and they bounce from, we look at them and we, and we realize there's something missing. There's a troubling in their soul because there is something that God has intended that those that have a father will be stable, will be secure, not tossed to and fro. There is something powerful about saying, that's my dad. That's my dad. That's my identity. That's my security. That's, my, that's who I am. And the, th and the fourth thing, the reason why God has intended this closeness of relationship with ordinary men is that God gets all the glory. You know, I was, because of Israel, reading the story of Theodore Herzl, who was the founder of modern Zionism in the establishing of the state of Israel. And in 1897, he started the first Zionist Congress in the Swiss city of Basel. 
And at the end of it all, he wrote these words. He said, at Basel, I founded the Jewish state. If I said this out aloud today, I would be answered by universal laughter. Perhaps in five years, certainly in 50, everyone will know it. 50 years after these words were written, the Jewish state came into being. And I remember reading that account. I was sitting in bed and I said out loud, I couldn't help, I said out loud, I said, if God is into something, he only needs one man. If God is, you think about it, one man says, this is what, and God says, I'm into that, and he uses it, and 50 years against all the odds, the state of Israel became a nation. But then I read his diary about that conference. Sounds glorious, doesn't it? Then I read his, his diary, and he is absolutely frustrated during the conference. There are setbacks. There are people problems. You know, there's one man who's upset because he's not being given prominence. So he's having to deal with him. Uh, There are others that are speaking too long. There are others that say the wrong thing. Some wouldn't even wear the correct clothing. He's trying to get a spirit in the place of, you know what, we're serious here. And so, and so he's having to do, listen, brother, please dress appropriately. We want to be seen as serious. He had, to, he had deep concerns. He had to beseech. There were rebels. One man said, they will crucify you yet, and I will be your Mary Magdalene. People are clashing in the conference people are not getting it. And it makes me laugh because that kind of sounds a little bit like, you know what I mean? Glory. And so the truth is, some of you, the truth is what we have in this place is ordinary pastors with ordinary people. But if God is into it, we can do great things for God. And look what God is doing. And so what should our response be as we close? There are those that are frustrated by imperfection. My son, Jake, uh, 10 years old, plays uh, uh, football. He's in a football league. This is a 10-year-old boy. And uh, uh, in the league, there's numbers of uh, teams, obviously. Just recently, one of the teams were banned from playing because of the abuse by the parents to the umpire. 10 years old. People are screaming abuse at the umpire because there is much frustration with with, uh, decisions that don't go our way. We're upset. There's a manager called Arsene Wenger. This is all for the Arsenal supporters who every time they lose gets on the, uh, uh, the TV and you can see he's always whinging about the referee. And so there's a great call, and I know it's uh, 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 here in America too, for technology. We want the video replay. We want the buzzers. We want the line. We want everything. So in other words, to eliminate any human error. Now, can you imagine if we brought that into pastoring? The husband and wife come in. They sit there as they always do, blaming each other. And he's talking, you know, he's saying, this is what she's done. She's sitting there, her eyes are rolling. Ah, oh, yeah. Pastor, then she said, ah. Oh. 
You know. She then speaks, he's folding, he's folding. And, And so the pastor's sitting there trying to discern, you know, who, what, why, you said what, she said what? No, I didn't. I said, yeah, and, and, and you're, you're dealing with this, trying to make a conclusion and, and come to some decision. Imagine if you just said, you know what, don't worry. We've actually had a camera in your house for the last six months. We just like to play it. Uh, let's uh, you know, press the button and we, <laughs> you see. <laughs> they're sitting there smiling. <laughs> The truth is, that doesn't happen. Now, don't get me wrong, I'll make this clear, don't get me wrong, I'm not preaching some weak, insipid, we're all humans, we're all people, uh, uh, therefore there's no need of accountability. I'm not saying, oh, come, you know, we're all people, uh, there's no accountability. I'm not preaching uh, uh, the removing of expectation or pastoral ethics, accountability, discipline, and all of those issues, I'm not making the excuse, but rather a reality that God has ordained that this is who we live with. We have to take the rough with the smooth, imperfection in humanity. He's not a computer. He's not an angel, but he's my dad. He's my dad. You know what, Jake, my boy, who I'm pretty proud of, he's a, he's a, as you would say, a cool kid. Cool kid. He's a great kid. So he's at school a little while ago. This was, uh, uh, I think he was nine at this point, maybe 10. And uh, it's near the end of term, and it doesn't matter what school you send your kids to, they seem to, at the end of term, always want to show videos and movies. Now, that for a small kid's a highlight. Come on. I mean, it's like, yeah. You know, especially for our kids, man. It's like, whoa. <laughs> like, whoa. You know, this is like a highlight. But I've never seen my son get up for morning for school ever. So, oh, must be the end of term. <laughs> but this one day he says to me, Dad, I went to school. And, uh, you know, it is. It's, it's movie break. And... Uh, they're going to show the video, um, Harry Potter. And the teacher, and I know, you know, it's a fairly, it's a good school, and so maybe this is why, but she's just about to press the button. You can imagine all the kids are there, including my son. This is his chance. And the teacher says, is there anyone here who's not allowed to watch Harry Potter? So now he has a dilemma. If he raises his hand, they're not going to show the video to the rest of his friends, right? They'll move it. They'll show something else. All the kids are high. If he raises his hand, he's going to let down all of his friends. He said, Dad, I was sitting there and I'm wrestling. He said, I I didn't want to let down my friends. But then I realized I don't want to let down my dad, and he put up his hand. (laughs) 
I want to say to you, not to let down your dad means something. It means something about the choices you make. It means something about your attitudes behind closed doors. It means how you view him, how you speak of him. And there are certain things that this, uh, as we bring this to a conclusion, that first of all, we should be praying for our pastors, not being their critics. We should not be comparing them to the heavenly host down the road. Paul preaches and beseeches for prayer. He says that you would strive together with me in prayers to God for me because this ordinary man is saying, I know my task. I know the enormity of my decisions. I don't need someone to point out the problems. I need someone to intercede with me to help me find the solution. The second thing uh, uh, is that we should support them financially. How often in a pirate, that was a good, that was right there, that was a good, let me repeat that. We should support them financially. How often in a pioneer church, those who have heaped up teachers to themselves, they have no problems with the extravagance of their teacher's lifestyle, yet do very little to support financially their pastor. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. We are admonished in this very ordinary setting with a powerful God, this closeness of relationship to obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Hebrews 13, seven, remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. I conclude with this. David Kennedy, the pastor from South Africa, went from a very young, immature boy, a teenager, who out of embarrassment for the ordinariness the commonness of his family and his father. He went from a young man who despised it, was ashamed of it, to now a pastor, a man who's grown up with his own family, who has incredible pride and incredible awe of his father and his mother. And I know Mr. and Mrs. Kennedy this couple, this elderly missionary couple are the most, one of the most precious people you could ever meet. And we stand, when they come to visit us in our churches, uh, 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 we're in awe to meet them. And it's interesting how life turns. Now Pastor Kennedy is proud to introduce anybody to his father. See, we might like the bright and the shining but I want to tell you there's something glorious about sound doctrine. There's something glorious about a pastor who stays the course. There's something wonderful about a, a pastor who lives the life, the ordinary, 
and we watch him and see him work his way through and he stays the time and there's something in it. We say, you know what? If you can do it, so can I. There's something about the method that God has ordained, not that we, that we would be in our settings, as small or as large as it is, that we would learn to follow and learn how to, how to be a disciple and how to catch it. And there's a security. There's my father. I know who I belong to. And we urge you, brethren, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 13, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace amongst yourselves. I don't know the size of your church. You might be in a pioneer church, but your pastor called by God, ordinary, is your father. Something in him, so if he will stay the course, so as you, you can learn, we can esteem. And one day, one day, if we all make it, make it to the finish line together, we'll be incredibly proud of our ordinary pastors. Can you say amen? Let's, let's give God praise as we... I've got a father. Let's bow our heads together.